This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. 13 years ago, when we moved into our new house, we had to have some construction done when we moved in. And there was a point in the construction where the entire back of our house was open to the elements. Uh, Actually, for several weeks, I was, you know, seven, eight months pregnant with Levi. We had two little ones. Um, and, And so we had these tarps that were kind of taped to the back of the house at night. Um, we couldn't move out and rent somewhere else. And so we were living in the house that was essentially open to the elements. And it was pretty much fine until we heard that there were coyotes in the neighborhood, which happens sometimes in the concrete jungle of uh, Pico Robertson. And and I realized there there are some challenges to living in a house while you're building the house. And I was thinking about that this week as I was reading Parshat Mishpatim. So very quickly, the context is two weeks ago, Levi Browslight read the crossing of the sea. It's big, it's bold, it's beautiful, it's miraculous. The Israelite people walk through the sea on dry land. Last week, Sam Krieger read the story of the Israelite people surrounding the mountain and God's booming voice comes down and gives the revelation at Sinai. It's all very big and dramatic. This week we read, And these are the rules now, the rules that you have to set before them. Here are the laws. You're gonna build a legal system that will hold people accountable for their actions. If one person strikes another person, here's what to do. If someone's ox gores another person, if someone leaves a pit that's uncovered, and his neighbor's animal falls into it. If someone steals, say you light a fire that causes damage to someone else's property or you borrow something from a friend and then you break it, what are you going to do? If you find your animals, uh, your, your enemy's lost animal, what is your responsibility? We have fully transitioned now from the sacred to the mundane, from the fire and the thunder and the lightning, from God's own voice echoing through the desert canyon to dozens and dozens of laws relating to how to build a just society. And it seems like the Torah is telling us that this is how you translate the most radical lessons of the Exodus, the commitment to human dignity, to freedom from oppression, to radical equality into a functional society by getting in the weeds and the details. And you might think it's a little bit of a kind of spiritual whiplash for the people who were invited to contemplate the greatest of miracles and now all of a sudden are really being given the tachlis. This is how you build a society that is fair and just. But but when it's presented to the people, they actually don't resist. I mean, you might expect that they would, but but they don't. It it, it says, it says, okay, we'll do it. Okay, they say in chapter 19. And then again in chapter 24, it says, All right, we'll do it. And then very famously in chapter 24, verse 7, only a few verses later, It's different the third time, but each time they say, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And also 
we'll obey it, we'll hear it, we'll listen to it. You know, I learned this text with uh, with our board earlier in the week, and I want to say if we had an hour together, I, I would love to think with you about what that really means. We're going to do it, and then we're going to obey it, or we're going to hear it, or we're going to understand that. I would love to know if you think that that is some kind of blind obedience, unquestioning submission, just following orders, or if that is the greatest expression of faith. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit over lunch. I can tell you now with the rain clouds hovering that our tradition really reads this as a testament to the greatness of the people's commitment to God. This is a testament to our faith as a people. What happens when you act in the world without even understanding fully what you're doing? Well, Sefer HaChinuch says that we're called to do the right thing even if our heart's not in it even if we don't understand it, because even if you don't have the right kavanah, the right intention, when you do the right thing, you're going to learn the right intention. We're training our bodies to do the right thing by just getting out there and, and getting in the mix. I, I think about this all the time. I remember once years ago, pushing the double stroller through the pouring rain on the side of a highway, walking two miles to get to David's Cousins, kids, bat mitzvah in San Diego, right? Like I do, I can't even fathom why we're doing this. And yet we're Jews and we're doing it. And now it turns out as my kids are a little bit bigger, like they got the message. This really matters to us, right? And I can see it now in ways that I couldn't even before. There are certain things we know that we will only understand by doing them. So take a look, if you will, at what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has to say about this in one of his beautiful Divrei Torah from, this is from Parshat Mishpatim about five years ago. He said, the modern Western mind, this is on the second page, seeks to understand what we're committing ourselves to before making the commitment. We're, we're kind of trained to be rational thinkers. And that's fine, he says, when what's at stake is signing a contract, buying a new mobile phone, as I think he's giving us a little too much credit here, as if any of us really reads the, uh, the agreements on the mobile phone, or, or purchasing a subscription, but not when you're making a deep existential commitment. The only way, he says, to understand leadership is actually to lead. The only way to know if a, if a certain career path is right for you is to try it. And he says the people who hover at the edge of a commitment, reluctant to make a decision until all the facts are in, those people will eventually find that life has passed them by. The only way to understand a way of life is to take the risk of living it. So Nase Benishma will do it. And then eventually through extended practice and long exposure, we will understand why. And if you think about it, it's so true. There's so much wisdom there. You can't, you can't understand love until you fall in love. You can't understand art until you experience art. You can't understand a symphony until you sit in, in, that, in that concert hall and let the sound fill every, every bit of you. First, do it. Then later, you're going to understand it. And, and I bring this to us this week um, because I want to I, I lift up uh, Lauren Buckman, who we mentioned earlier, our dear friend Lauren, who's back in Toronto, and tomorrow will we'll bury his father. 
Lauren and I were planning on having a conversation at lunch today about his new book called Make to Know. Lauren's the president of the Pasadena Arts College, for those of you who don't know it. He's also the chair of our um, capital campaign and a very dear friend and beloved board, me board member. Um, and, and this book that he wrote, has anyone read it yet? Make to Know? A couple people. Okay. Um, I highly recommend this book. Um, and now you'll have many months to read it before Lauren and I reschedule our, our book talk. But it's essentially an attempt to upend popular ideas about how art is made. And I know we have a lot of writers here and a lot of artists here with us today. There's this, there's this narrative, this myth that we tell about the innate artistic and visionary genius. And instead, what, what Lauren wanted to do was probe the idea of discovery. That what happens to us through the art of making, when we actually start to do the thing before we have any idea of where it's going. And he talks about Michelangelo and how, you know, there's this famous story of Michelangelo that he saw the, 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 the image in the stone and then all he had to do was carve away until he could set free the image. But Lauren says, that's not what happens to most of us when we create art. Most of us only know what we're even trying to do once we start to do it. And he writes so powerfully, I'm fascinated by the revelatory nature of the creative journey, a journey relevant to us all and one, and, and one that has significant implications for how we live. Make to know, he says, is a concept about democratizing creativity and eradicating the notion that this striking part of our humanity, our capacity as makers, is reserved only for the chosen few. And, and he directly relates it to this week's Torah portion, to, to Parshat Mishpatim. He, he says, this is what Nasev and Nishma really means. It's not about we'll do it and we'll obey it. It's about we'll do it and then we'll discover it. We'll discover the meaning in it after we've actually put the work in. In order to be ready to listen, to understand, to discover, we first have to act. But, but we can't only act. The first two times, on the front of your study sheet, that the people accept it, they just say nase, nase, nase. It, only the third time they say nase venishma, indicating that it's not enough just to do it. You actually have to then do the work of discovery, do the work of internalizing and reflecting and considering what you've done. And I've been thinking a lot retrospectively about the trajectory of our community as I've been preparing for this sabbatical. You know, Sachs's words ring so true here. Eventually through extended practice and long exposure, we do start to understand. 18 years ago in April, in April, I think it'll be 19 years, um, Daniel Sokach and um, Melissa Balaban and Adam Wergelis and Paula and Lynn, we, we sat together, a few of us in, in Melissa and Adam's living room, and, and we articulated a dream of a different kind of Jewish future. And we looked at each other and said, we just have to do it. But my father required of me before I finished college that I had to take one class in economics because it wasn't enough for him to spend all that money and have me only do the sociology of gender roles and race and gender and ethnicity in American politics. He wanted me to take an economics class so I would be a reasonable, rational, rational person. And I did. And so I was very nervous about our just do it shotgun wedding that night. And I started to think like, maybe we need to create a business plan. 
maybe we need to think about how we're going to have healthcare and insurance uh, for my for my child, Eva, who is six months old. Maybe we need a safety net. Maybe we should start and do something once a month for a year, build some reserves, be responsible the way Rick Rouse would want us to be. But I expressed this concern to um, my friend, Simon Greer, who's coaching me. And he said, listen to me, Sharon, if you do not believe in this with every ounce of your being, nobody else will either. And it's going to fail before you even start. And I intuited that he was right. And, and Melissa and Adam did too. And so we, we just dove in. And, and I have to say, we were earnest. We were ambitious. We were a little bit naive. But we were determined to make something happen, even though there was no model for it. And even though we didn't even fully understand what it was that we were setting out to build together. In the beginning, Melissa was calling it smoke and mirrors. Because everyone thought we had this whole infrastructure, and uh, and we and we didn't. We didn't have any, we didn't have any money. We didn't have any space. At some point, I was the chief rabbi of the Fox lot when I snuck in and and would sit in uh, in in my brother-in-law's little bungalow. This was all built on a hope and a prayer, uh, on blood and sweat and tears, on $180 checks, including from my friend Greg in New York, who every now and then would just send us a check. And we'd say, great, we can pay the rent this Shabbat. We can do another service. This was about the treacherous nature of building a house when you were already living in it. And therefore being exposed to the elements in a way that doesn't always feel safe or great. This is about figuring out how to program and fundraise and budget and hire all according to our values with no roadmap for success. This was about learning as we went and making mistakes and reflecting and apologizing and pivoting and growing and ultimately becoming ourselves. In other words, we did a whole lot here before we had any idea what we were doing. Nasevanishma, right? We, we jumped in and we made something happen before, before we had any idea what it meant. And it strikes me that it can't be a coincidence that the chapter before Nasevanishma, we read about the Shemitah. So chapter 23, verse 10, six years you should sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh, let it rest and let it lie fallow. Let it rest and lie fallow. So you sow and you gather and you plant and you reap. You have no idea what you're doing at first, but faith and love and hard work will make something grow. You give it everything you've got, not a seh. Let's do this but know well that you cannot plant and sow and gather and reap forever. At some point, you have to pause. At some point, you have to rest and reflect, and that's the nishma. You have to listen and internalize and regenerate. Shemitah is the, the theological and the spiritual foundation for sabbatical. And the assumption is that when you've given the world literally everything you got, you actually need a periodic break from the rhythm you need a chance to digest some of the lessons that have been learned and deepen your roots as you prepare for the next chapter of your flourishing. Rashbam, who's Rashi's grandchild, says that nasa means we'll do everything you've told us about, and nishma means, and we'll listen carefully for what comes next. Because if we always act and we don't pause to listen, we might fail to discern what's actually supposed to come next. And I realize that this sermon is really more about me trying to convince myself than trying to convince all of you because you've all been incredibly supportive of the idea of sabbatical 
not just for me, but we now have an organizational wide uh, sabbatical policy and we're so excited about that, um, that every person who uh, works full time in the community for seven years is gonna be able to do this. And I'm so thrilled and excited about that. After 18 years of dedicating my whole being, my heart and mind and body and spirit to building and supporting our beloved community, my heart is so full of gratitude for the opportunity to step away for a moment. And I think you all know that it's gonna be really hard for me to disengage uh, from the day-to-day -day of this community. I was sitting here last Shabbat and I just thought, I don't wanna go, all my friends are here. <laughs> and, um, and I love being here. And the truth is I get really beautiful and kind letters from people around the world who say, in these dark times, I'm so grateful that tuning into Ikar has given me a sense of hope and purpose. But I want you to know that that doesn't come from me. For me, I've had many dark moments in the last many years, but it's knowing that I have to show up to share something hopeful with all of you that's given me the strength and the hope. And so it's very cyclical, it's very relational, it's very dialogical for me. It's gonna be hard not to be together with this community as inevitably life and death unfolds, as inevitably there are triumphs and challenges out in the world that we have learned to process together. But I'm really gonna try. So my goal in these next few months is to rest and to breathe and to study Torah and to read from the stack of 57 books that I have by my bedside because I'm super ambitious and I will not put them on the shelf. I wanna keep them right by my bedside in case I get to them that night. And I wanna tell you that my hope is not to share a lot of the Torah I learn and the books that I read in sermons. I just want it to lead me on adventures of the soul. And I'm gonna to try to write a book that's been growing in me for a decade a book that's been rooted in the Torah of this community and in what I've learned from all of you day after day, week after week, year after year. And I'm going to try to bring that book into the world, having faith in outcomes unknown. I'm so, I'm so nervous about this, folks, and I'm so excited to have this time for, for real reflection and study. And I look forward to returning to the work with a refreshed spirit and with new ideas and a new perspective. So I want to leave us on this uh, last sermon um, for, for a few months with the words of John O'Donohue, who's an Irish poet and has become a teacher of mine, because I think you'll resonate to his words as I have. He says, somewhere in every heart, there is a discerning voice. This voice is an inner whisper, not obvious or known to others outside. And yet much depends on that small voice. The truth of its whisper marks the line between honor and egoism, kindness and chaos. In extreme situations which have been emptied of all shelter and tenderness, that small voice whispers from somewhere beyond and encourages the heart to hold out for dignity, respect, beauty, and love. That whisper, that whisper brings forgotten nobility into an arena where violence has traduced everything. This faithful voice can illuminate the dark lands of despair. It becomes both the sign and presence of a transcendence that no force or horror can extinguish. Every day in the world, he writes, in the prisons and hospitals, 
and killing fields against all the odds, this still small voice continues to echo the beauty of the human being. In haunted places, this voice carries the light of beauty like a magical lantern to transform the desolation and to remind us that regardless of what may be wrenched from us, there is a dignity and hope that we do not have to lose. This voice brings us directly into contact with the inalienable presence of beauty in the soul. I really want to thank all of you. I want to thank Melissa and, and, and this clergy team and our leadership, our board leadership, and, and all of you, our incredible staff, and the just layers and layers of, of, of support and love in this community for granting me the opportunity to finally listen to the inner whisper. I am so certain that it will lead me to the inalienable presence of beauty in the soul and in the world. And I cannot wait to share with you what I learn when I return. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.